Well, tonight I wanted to talk about Psalm 130. One of the Puritans preached 45 sermons on this. I'm not going to even come close. Psalm 130. A song of degrees. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Out of the depths our psalmist cries. He is looking to the covenant-keeping God. Jehovah. He is in the deep, but his cry is to the one that covenanted to enter that deep and redeem his soul. He is crying to his God in faith. There is not a hint of unbelief in this psalm. He has a fast hold on his God, even in the darkness. What are the depths from which he cries? Who knows? Many attribute this to his sin, and it is most likely that it does have something to do with the weight of sin on the soul. But the psalmist does not tell us what his depths were. And perhaps it is better that way. Because it does not matter what our deep may be. We are weak and feeble creatures. And though it may be the bewilderment of a soul oppressed by its sins that have plunged it into the deep... There are times when it is inexplicable to us why the deep surrounds us. Our God sometimes wisely calls us through the waters and through the fire. And like the psalmist, we must not give way to doubt or fear, but cry to our Father, our Jehovah, our Jesus, and trust that he will bring us through. Isaiah tells us, Who is among among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord, and stay upon his God. And our psalmist is doing this very thing. He had been brought to the very depths, but he did not fail to trust his God. He continued to trust and to pray, even in the darkness. Our text tells us that he cried. It was not a small voice, but a mighty cry like that of our Lord when he was in the deep for us. It was a roaring cry, audible and importunate. It was a heartfelt cry to the Father in the cold blackness and bone-crushing darkness of the deep. It was to God that he cried, but not only to God as Jehovah, in verse 1, but also to God as Adonai in verse 2. The words are different. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. 
The word here in verse 2 for Lord is Adonai. He speaks now to God in reverential tones and with the emphatic form of the word Adon, which means sovereign, Lord, master, or owner. He is addressing him as the ruler of the waves that are billowing over his head. He is importunately seeking his God. Not only as the one that promises to deliver, Jehovah, in verse 1, but as the one that is sovereign Lord over all that could stand in the way of that deliverance. He is using both the name that communicates God's unfailing purpose of redemption, but he is also using the name that speaks of his immeasurable power to accomplish that purpose. He is crying out to his God with audible voice and asking Adonai, the sovereign ruler of all, to bend down and listen to his voice. And what is this but the faith of a child? For who but a child would go to a king and say, bend down and listen? Here we have a request so urgent, so importunate, that he is humbly but very earnestly beseeching the Lord, the creator, the master of all the universe, to stoop and listen to his request. What a marvelous faith. The next few verses show us the reason for so great a boldness in his approach, and perhaps some of the reason for his being in the depths to begin with. Verses 3 and 4 say, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Here again in verse 3, he introduces yet another name for Jehovah. Yah. John Owen, in commenting on the psalmist's use of the name Yah, Lord, says, Here he fixes on another name of God, which is Yah, a name though from the same root as the former, yet seldom used, but to intimate and express the terrible majesty of God. He rideth on the heavens and is extolled by his name, Yah. Psalm 68. Strong says of Yah that it has the same meaning as Jehovah from which it is taken, but then he adds, Yah, the sacred name, Yah, the Lord, most vehement. So he asks the question, If thou, Yah, the Lord most vehement, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, Lord and Master, Maker, Sovereign, Ruler of all, who should stand? And if you're a child of God, you've asked this question in your heart. In the quietest of your mind, you've considered the terrifying fact that this verse presents to our minds. None can stand before this God. Were we to measure ourselves by this question, we would find ourselves full of iniquity within, defiled without, and shrinking before that eye that like a flame of fire searches the soul right down to its very core. The word of his mouth cuts to the quick and divides bone and marrow, wilting before the holiness and purity of that all-seeing, all-knowing God, the master, maker, and ruler of all. Our souls would cry out with Nahum and Malachi. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt. The earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. 
But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. If it were not for the fact that there is forgiveness with him. Verse 4. We would find ourselves on that great day when the seals were opened, are opened. With the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man as they hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? If it were not for his plenteous redemption and his steadfast love, if it were not for the fact that with him there is forgiveness, our sins would crush us before him. For we would find ourselves standing before God with that great multitude as the books were opened, and we would, to our everlasting dismay, find that we were wanting. For as Solomon says, God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. There is nothing hidden from the eyes of our God. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, and surely he does mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And surely none can. But is this really a rhetorical question? It is for the unbeliever. For the answer must be yes. The marks against him are many. And he will not be able to stand before him. He will be consumed. Unless he, like the psalmist, takes hold upon the forgiveness offered. But mark this. That it need not be so. For there are two wonderful words in this prayer. In verse 3 he says, if. And in verse 4. He says, but if thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, and but there is forgiveness with thee. There is a blessed if here for the believer, for the prayer of faith recognizes that there is one to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And it is the same who cries, but there is forgiveness with thee. So the answer for him is, No, he does not mark them, but forgives them. And thus, in grace, the psalmist is able to stand. Here is a wonderful thing. The abyss is open before the eyes. There is the threatening of thunder and lightning on the mount. But there is forgiveness with thee. How is it that the psalmist can say this? How is it that there can be an if and a but in this passage? The answer is heard or seen in the words of our Savior. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in the darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. There is forgiveness because he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. C.H. Spurgeon, in commenting on this wonderful verse, said this, 
It is as if you heard justice clamoring, let the sinner die. And the fiends in hell howling, cast him down into the fires. And conscience shrieking, let him perish. And nature itself groaning beneath his weight, the earth weary with carrying him. And the sun tired with shining upon the traitor. The very air sick with finding breath for one who only spends it in disobedience to God. The man is about to be destroyed. To be swallowed up quick. When suddenly there comes this thrice blessed but. Which stops the reckless course of ruin. Puts forth its strong arm. Bearing a golden shield between the sinner and destruction. And pronounces these words. But there is forgiveness with God. That he may be feared. This is the psalmist's great confidence. But there is forgiveness with thee. Contrary to the working of the natural mind, forgiveness of sin produces reverential fear. Love produces holiness, grace, obedience. The same thought is echoed in the second chapter of the Romans, where it is said that the goodness of God, the goodness of God, leads men to repentance. It is, not, it is the gospel, not the law, that produces in the heart, or in the heart of a man, that which pants after God. Calvin, in commentating, <clears throat> commenting on this, says that men never serve God aright unless they know that he is a gracious and merciful being. The terrors of a broken law might through slavish fear hold in check the stony heart, but stone it remains. And eventually horrible, the horrible rebellion that lies hidden within will manifest itself. The law cannot change the heart. Only the forgiveness of sin and the grace of God can melt the heart of stone. This truth that the conscience must first be purged before the sinner can serve God with any sincerity is wonderfully illustrated in a passage from William Romaine's The Walk of Faith. He says this. No sin can be crucified either in heart or life unless it first be pardoned in conscience. Because there will be a lack of faith to receive the strength of Jesus by whom alone it can be crucified. If it be not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. If the believer does not see his perfect deadness to sin in Jesus, he will open a wide door to unbelief. And if he be not persuaded of his completeness in Christ, he gives room for the attacks of self-righteous and legal tempers. If Christ be not all in all, self must still be looked upon as something great. And there will be food left for the pride of self-importance and self-sufficiency. This is the proper order then. First, forgiveness. Then, service. Unless the heart is at rest in the forgiveness of God, it will shrink back in fear. But perfect love casts out fear. And it is this love that enables the psalmist to pray the way he does. He does not have a slavish fear of Adonai, but rather asks him to stoop and listen. To attend to his cry. Rather than shrinking from the sovereign hand. He embraces the sovereign power. Knowing that it is a benevolent Lord. That, leave, that wields the scepter. How different our view of God's sovereignty. 
when once we have laid hold of his love. It is sovereign love that pursues us. And when once it has captured our heart, there is no more comforting title to the believer than that of Adonai, Master. For the king has set his immutable love upon us, and he means to use all that sovereign power to do us good. So it is in this confidence that he draws near, knowing that his sin is forgiven, that there is no condemnation, that he has been redeemed from all iniquity. Verse 8. There is no reliance on himself or his work, only on his covenant God. The next verses are no less amazing. I wait for the Lord, Jehovah. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord, Adonai. More than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. He is in the depths, but he waits for the Lord, Jehovah. But not only does he wait, does he wait, but his soul waits. To the eye of man, he is not ruffled. He is calm. He is waiting. But more than that, the inward man has peace. His soul is waiting on his God. John Calvin, again, in commenting on this, points out that some can, by force of nature, give the outward impression of calmness in trial, even though inwardly there is a raging storm. But, says Calvin, there is hardly one in ten who, when removed from the inspection of his fellow men and in his own heart, waits for God with a quiet mind. Here again, the cause is plain, for he says, in his word... Do I hope? It was in the promises of his God that he was resting all his hope, all his weight. There is nothing here in all the psalm of anything that he could boast in. It was all grace. He was waiting for Jehovah, the covenant God. But look again. He uses both names of God in these verses as well. His soul is waiting not only on the promises of God, but on the power of God. Not only on God, Jehovah, but Adonai. And note also the earnestness of his desire to see the Lord. It is more than they that watch for the morning. The text in the original actually reads this way. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. Watch for the morning. Has kind of an eerie echo to it, but it is, is it not just so? Have you ever tossed on a bed of sickness or sat by the sick one waiting for the sun to rise? Have you ever spent a night tossing back and forth with a mind that's restless, <clears throat> with plaguing thoughts crashing through your mind and watched for the dawning of the day? That is here the picture. Only the psalmist is saying, I know that you will deliver. And I am watching for it with still more earnestness than that. This is not the watch of unbelief, but the confident looking forward to the promised deliverance. It is a watching with eager anticipation of the mighty God to come and deliver his child with a strong arm. He has heard the cry of his little one, and he will deliver. This was illustrated to me some years ago. Tori broke her arm, and it was a bad break. She had to have surgery. Three pins in her elbow. 
And the night I brought her home, she was in a lot of pain. And they'd given her morphine in the hospital, and we had, I don't know what we had, some kind of Lortab or something. And I told her when she went to bed that night, I said, you can't have any more until the morning. And I didn't hear anything all night long. But as soon as the dawn broke, I heard this little voice calling Daddy <laughs> in the other room. And when I went to her bedside, I wish I had written down what she said because it was such a precious expression of a little heart that had, that had suffered through a long, dark night. She told me that her arm had been hurting really badly. And then she said, it took a long time for the morning to come. She called her father as soon as the dawn broke because she knew that not only could I help her, but I would help her. Oh, the watching, the expectant watching of the child of God. The psalmist says, you will not mark my iniquities. There is forgiveness with you. I will watch for the deliverance that will surely come. I will watch with an expectancy of a watchman that watches for the dawn. And what is the psalmist waiting for? It would appear for the Lord himself. Amen. Amen. I don't have time to really get into this, but if you notice, the prayer begins with the cry for God to hear his supplications. But there aren't any. There are no supplications in this song. There is one desire. His heart is longing for the Lord himself. And then finally... In the last verses, he turns his focus outward and is encouraging all Israel, all the redeemed people of God, to come and share the same hope that he has, to look to the Lord Jehovah, with whom there is mercy. Or as the ESV translated, steadfast love has said, and redemption that is plenteous. <clears throat> A God that can be feared because he has forgiven them all their iniquity. Yes. I know, I haven't done this psalm justice, but do take this one thing away with you tonight. If you take nothing else away, there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. This is a grand truth that will buoy your soul up in the darkest days. It is a truth that will settle your soul on the rock that cannot be moved. It is the truth that will spur you on to higher heights of love and deeper depths of devotion. An old divine once said, there are depths in the ocean I am told, which no tempest ever stirs. They are beyond the reach of all storms, which sweep and agitate the surface of the sea. And there are heights in the blue sky above to which no cloud ever ascends, where no tempest ever rages, where all is perpetual sunshine, and nothing exists to disturb the deep serene. Each of these is an emblem of the soul which Jesus visits, to whom he speaks peace, whose fear he dispels, and whose lamp of hope he trims. Brethren, I don't know, but that you might be in the depths tonight. If you are, look up and away, and trust that our God is a God of hesed, steadfast love, Amen. and that he will stoop to hear your cry Cry to him in a faith that believes that there is forgiveness with him, that he may be feared. And if you're not in the depths, praise the Lord. But know, know this. 
You will be one day. Yes, Phil. There is no path through this veil of tears that at some point will not lead you through these deep waters. Absolutely. Yes. Store up now yes. those precious promises that are in his word and fix your mind on his love. Keep yourself, as Jude says, in the love of God. And it will be your happy testimony too that in the depths you will be able to say, my soul waits for him yes. more than they that watch for the morning. Amen. And I thought of this as I walked in the door tonight. The psalmist used these wonderful names of God. But you have a name that he would have never dared 